you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Ezekiel chapter 35. Ezekiel 35. Last week in chapter 34, we heard the words of judgment against bad shepherds and bad sheep with the promise that the Lord would be their shepherd over Israel. After speaking about the bad shepherds, we hear, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. After speaking of the evil or the bad sheep, we hear, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them, he will tend them and be their shepherd. This all points ahead to the Messiah, the son of David, the Lord Jesus, who one day would say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. All of this is followed in chapter 34 by the following. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of wild beasts so that they may live in the desert and sleep in the forest in safety. I will bless them in the places surrounding my hill. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in the land. In their land, they will know that I am the Lord. It goes on with the promises that God makes to Israel. What follows, what we're looking at today, has to be seen in that light. Uh, chapter 35 doesn't just sort of appear out of nowhere. It, it comes within a particular context. Um, it's one of the, the dangers of looking at Scripture is that oftentimes we will look at a verse or even a chapter and not see it within its proper context. Chapter 35 is a denunciation against Edom. And some have wondered, why is this chapter here? That, in fact, it should be somewhere else. I mean, we've just had the promise of the covenant of peace, and now we're talking about the Gentiles again? I mean, that's something that we did back in chapter 25. You may remember how that God spoke of the four neighboring nations, Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. If you're going to talk about Edom, you should have done it back in chapter 25. Um, it was surprising, and I think I may have mentioned this, that very little is said about Edom in chapter 25. Uh, of all the peoples, they are the most closely related uh, to Israel. But now we come to chapter 35, and... Here it is. Why do we put it after chapter 34? Ezekiel's talking about the restoration of Israel, and now he goes back to talking about their enemies. Several things to note before we read this passage. First of all, I've been saying Edom, and if you've been looking at your Bibles, uh, Edom is not mentioned once in chapter 35. Instead, it is Mount Seir. And so that would be the equivalent of, instead of saying Israel, say Jerusalem. Okay. So Edom by name is not mentioned here, but Mount Seir is as a mountain, which we will see is important in the, con you know, in the context of what will follow in chapter 36. Okay. Secondly, um, there is a style that we find in chapter 35 and 36. 36 deals with Israel, 35 with Edom or Mount Seir. And that style is where God says, because of, and says, therefore, you know, these will be the results. And we find that in both of these chapters, 
So again, I would argue chapter 35 belongs exactly where it is. Thirdly, and I think this is a key, the restoration of Israel and the land promised, the covenant of peace, requires the destruction of Edom. That is, Edom could not continue to exist as a threat to Israel if Israel is going to be restored. Okay. So, we read um, that they will no longer be plundered by the nations. Wild animals will not devour them. They will live in safety. Well, for this to happen, Edom's got to be gone. Mount Seir must be left desolate, and that's what happens. So again, chapter 35 is exactly where it belongs. What we find in this chapter is a denunciation of Edom's treachery. And there are three accusations that are made here, but look, if you would, at the first, three, uh, first four verses here. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir, prophesy against it, and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolate waste. I will turn your towns into ruins and you will be desolate. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Just a side note, something we mentioned way back in the beginning, you may have forgotten. Ezekiel is addressed as the son of man. And that title, son of man, is found most frequently in the book of Ezekiel. Not in the Gospels, where we would think it referring to Jesus. It is here that we find it referring to Ezekiel. So there are three accusations that will be made in this chapter and that is why Mount Seir will be left desolate. First of all, because of their perpetual and ancient hatred, their attacks of the children of Israel, particularly in their times of distress. Look, if you would, at verses 5 through 9. Because you hardened, harbored an ancient hostility and delivered the Israelites over to the sword at the time of their calamity, the time their punishment reached its climax. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will give you over to bloodshed and it will pursue you. Since you did not hate bloodshed, bloodshed will pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a desolate waste and cut, it, cut off from it all who come and go. I will fill your mountains with the slain. Those killed by the sword will fall on your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines. I will make you desolate forever. Your towns will not be inhabited then you will know that I am the Lord. The history of Israel and Edom goes all the way back to a pregnancy. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was pregnant with twins, Esau and Jacob. And even in the womb, they were struggling. And she went to ask, what's going on? Why, why do they keep moving so much? And she's told that there, there will be this, this continual enmity between them that the, the older would serve the younger. Esau came out first, he's the older twin. Jacob comes out second, he is the second. But it is Jacob, in fact, who, to whom the promises are given. He is the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The covenant goes to Jacob and his descendants. The conflict between them, you know, sibling rivalry, we know about that, how Jacob uh, bought the birthright when his brother was starving. He tricked his dad into giving him the blessing. We know all about that, but it continues. Um, almost 500 years later, more than 500 years later, 
as Israel is going through the wilderness and they're just on the verge of coming into the promised land. Um, This is from Numbers 20. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom saying, this is what your brother Israel says. In other words, we have this, this tie. You come from Esau, we come from Jacob. Okay? You know about all the hardships that have come upon us. Our forefathers went down into Egypt and we lived there many years. The Egyptians mistreated us and our fathers. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now we are here at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We will not go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom answered, you will not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. The Israelites replied, we will go along the main road. And if we are livestock, drink any of your water, we will pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. Again, they answered, you may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. Since Edom refused to let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them. So one wonders if Edom would have allowed allowed any other nation to pass through, but they will not allow Israel, who is their distant relative. I mean, Esau, Jacob, two different lines, They are related by blood. No. And they bring out the army just to make sure that Israel won't come through. But this continues hundreds of years later during the reign of David. Where David, it says David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So there is a time in which Israel attacked Edom. 150 years, about 150 years after David, one of his descendants, uh, his name is Jehoram, says that during his time, Edom rebelled against Judah and set up its own king. So Jehoram went to Zaire with all his chariots. The Edomites surrounded him and his chariot commanders, but he rose up and broke through by night. His army, uh, however, fled back home. To this day, Edom has been in rebellion against Judah. So there is an ancient hatred. It goes all the way back to Rebekah. It continues through Moses, David, and Jehoram. Um, In the words of the prophet Amos, his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. There is this bitterness, this rage that the Edomites carry against the Israelites. This leads to the second accusation So when Nebuchadnezzar came in 587 and was able to destroy Jerusalem and the temple, the Edomites cheered him on. They were hoping that they would gain territory. Verse 10, and you'll notice again the because, therefore. Because you have said these two nations and countries will be ours, and we will take possession of them, even though I, the Lord, was there. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will treat you in accordance with the anger and jealousy you showed in your hatred of them, and I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have heard all these contemptible things you have said against the mountains of Israel. 
you said they have been laid waste and have been given over to us to devour. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, go, get them. And when you're gone, we will expand our territory. Now it won't simply be Edom to the sort of southeast, but we will go northwest and take over that territory as well. This is the third thing. Not only did they cheer him on, they gloated. Their arrogant boast and cruel gloating. Look at verse 13. You boasted against me and spoke against me without restraint, and I heard it. This is what the sovereign Lord says. While the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. Because you rejoiced when the inheritance of the house of Israel became desolate. I would insert here. Therefore, that is how I will treat you. You will be desolate, O Mount Seir, you and all of Edom. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This event, the destruction of Jerusalem, and Edom cheering on Nebuchadnezzar, and gloating, and being arrogant, is mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament. Perhaps the best known is in Psalm 137. Psalm 137 begins, By the waters of Babylon we sat and wept when we remember Zion. Later, in verse number 7, this is what we read. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. And for these reasons, these three accusations, Mount Seir, at a certain point, is going to cease to exist. It will be desolate. Its people would be no more. The land of the one twin, Esau, will be no more. This is not the case, the descendants of the other twin, of Jacob. And that's what chapter 36 is about. Um, The mountain, Mount Seir, will be desolate. But now we read about the mountains of Israel in this chapter. You may remember that one of the aspects of the covenant of peace is that the Lord would be their shepherd. And this is carried through now with the idea of a new land and a a renewed people. But it begins with opposition. We should not be surprised. Verses 1 through 7, the enemies of the mountains of Israel. Look at verse 1. Son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The enemy said of you, Aha! Therefore prophesy and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because they ravaged and hounded you from every side so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations and the object of people's malicious talk and slanders. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys, to the desolate ruins and deserted towns that have been plundered and ridiculed by the rest of the nations around you. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. In my burning zeal I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom. For with glee and with malice in their hearts they made my land their own possession so that they might plunder its pasture land. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and valleys, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I speak in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the scorn of the nations. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I swear with uplifted hand that the nations around you will also suffer scorn. This is the context. First of all, you have Mount Seir, and they're just, you know, 
they were so delighted at the fall of Judah and Jerusalem. The Gentile nations around them were. Well, the Lord, in fact, will restore. Uh, Verse 8, But you, O mountains of Israel, will produce branches and fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come home. I am concerned for you and will look on you with favor. You will be plowed and sown. And I will multiply the number of people upon you, even the whole house of Israel. The towns will be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will increase the number of men and animals upon you. They will be fruitful and become numerous. I will settle people on you as in the past and will make you prosper more than before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will cause people, my people Israel, to walk upon you. That is the mountains. They will possess you and you will be their inheritance. You will never again deprive them of their children. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because people say to you, you devour men and deprive your nation of his children. Therefore, you will no longer devour men or make your nation childless, declares the sovereign Lord. No longer will I make you hear the taunts of the nations. And no longer will you suffer the scorn of the peoples or cause your nation to fall, declares the sovereign Lord. Here, God addresses through Ezekiel the mountains. We're like, isn't preaching supposed to be to people? But in fact, there is this prophecy. There are these words that are spoken to the mountains that in fact they will be revitalized. There will be this restoration, this renewal. And because of that, the people of Israel will be renewed as well. God said, I will bring them back soon. And then things will begin to grow. They will be fertile. Uh, Things will be as they should be. They will be restored. But in the meantime, let's do a little historical retrospective. Verse 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land, because they defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations, and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Here we come to familiar material. The sins of Israel... The judgment on Israel, God poured out his wrath, he dispersed them. And then again, the sins of Israel. Okay, it wasn't bad enough that when they lived in Judah and Jerusalem, they defiled the land. They profaned God's name by worshiping false idols. Now they go into exile, and what do they do in exile? They do the same thing. They continue to profane God's name. Which leads to a very important question, I think, particularly for the Gentiles. Why should God restore these people? I mean, if you are doing an accounting, if you're just trying to think, you know, common sense, there's no way God should restore these people. They have rebelled against him when they were there. He sends them into exile. You would think they might learn the lesson, but no, they profane his name there too. And then God says, oh, by the way, mountains, I'm going to restore Israel. Uh, Edom, I'm going to restore Israel. What person, what God in his right mind 
would restore such a people. This is explained in what follows. Verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and desolate practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O Israel. Verse 22 and verse 32 sum it all up. It is not for your sake, Israel. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to restore you for your sake. Because if that's what God was doing, then yeah, you could say, why is God doing this? But it is for the sake of his holy name. And the same thing is true of our salvation. If you think about it, why is it that God has saved us? Is it because we're wonderful people? Is it because we're just so delightful that we are good? No, it is because of his holiness and his grace. Oftentimes the question has been asked, why doesn't God save everybody? And I must confess that that's not a question I may have asked once or twice, but my question is, why does God save anybody? I mean, why? Why save anybody? It's not because of us. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but it is because of his holy name, because of his grace. By his grace, we have been saved. And in doing this, and by the way, I don't know if you've noticed how many times we've, just in chapters 34, uh, 35 and 36, then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And what God is doing when he will restore Israel is to be an object lesson to the nations. Look at verse 33. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be, desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then 
the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. The restoration of Israel and God's people would, in fact, be a lesson to the Gentiles. Yes, all their sins, their wickedness, they profane God's name, they defile the land. Yes, God has forgiven them, and God has restored them. This is the nature of God, a God of all grace. And then it ends with two two verses here, 37 and 38. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. They've been decimated three separate times. Babylon has taken people away. Very few people are left in the land, but God will bring them back and he will increase them in number. Now we come to chapter 37. And this is probably, I think without a doubt, the best known passage in Ezekiel. If you know little or nothing about the book of Ezekiel, you probably have heard of chapter 37. Maybe not the page, not the chapter number, But the story, it is the valley of the vision of dry bones. Does it sound familiar? It's a very familiar passage, but it is generally misunderstood. Some people see it as talking about the resurrection. Others see it as an analogy for salvation. But if we look at it in terms of context, that's not what's being said whatsoever. The context began in chapter 34, the covenant of peace. Chapter 35, God will deal with Mount Seir. They'll be desolate. Chapter 36, God will restore Israel. How is this even possible? How is this even possible? I mean, here we are, and it's it's been difficult, but we've been in a pandemic now for a year and a half. And it's hard to imagine how things will ever get back to normal, whatever normal is. Sometimes it's even hard to remember what things were like before the pandemic. I've told Gay a number of times, you know, we'll be watching a movie or something, and I'm like, they're not wearing masks. And I'm like, oh, that's right. There was a time when, when people didn't wear masks. And to imagine that somehow there will be a time when the pa- pandemic won't exist anymore. That's kind of hard. Well, that's easy compared to the task that Israel had. God is going to get rid of Edom. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to bring them back. There are going to be plenty of people. You know, the fertility rates are going to go through the roof. They're going to be having babies left and right. The population will explode. And Ezekiel is saying this to people who aren't even living in Israel. They're in Babylon They're exiles. How can this possibly be? Well, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones is the answer to that question. How can this be? Verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me in the middle of a valley. 
It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Just a couple things to note here. First of all, Ezekiel is of the tribe of Levi. He is a priest. And to touch the bone of a dead person is to be unclean. And the Lord has him walk back and forth in this valley filled with dry bones, human bones. Okay. So there is that, that aspect of being defiled. And the question is, can what seems impossible actually happen? Can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, you're the only one who knows the answer to that. So now he is instructed as to what he should do. Verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. There it is. Then you will know that I am the Lord. What is Ezekiel to do? He's to preach to dry bones. Uh, One would think that preaching would be more effective if you preach to the living, not to the dead. But he's to preach to these dry bones and he is to say to them, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. And I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Ezekiel does as he's instructed. I mean, he's done some fairly unusual things thus far in this book. So to preach the bones, God tells him to do it, and he does it. And the bones come together. Tendons and flesh appeared on them. Skin covered them. But there is no breath in them. So further instructions. Verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Can you imagine that he prophesies and then suddenly the bones come together, tendons, flesh, they're covered by skin, they can't breathe. And then he preaches again, this time to the wind, and the wind comes And now they are able to breathe. The source of breath are the four winds, which points, I think, to the dispersion of the people of Israel. They've been dispersed to the four winds. Um, And now these bones that are now people are now breathing. Verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Now we're told who the bones represent. The whole house of Israel says, you know, we're just dry bones. We're just dry bones. We have 
no hope. We are cut off. By the way, the idea of the dry bones is something I think that comes from Jeremiah 8. And we've said before that at different points, Ezekiel will make reference to what Jeremiah said. Uh, Jeremiah 8, 1. At that time declares the Lord, the bones of the kings and officials of Judah, the bones of the priests and prophets, and the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. They will be exposed to the sun and to the moon and all the stars of the heavens, which they have loved and served and which they have followed and consulted and worshiped. They will not be gathered up or buried, but will be like refuge lying on the ground. I think this is what the exiles are thinking of. We're, we're finished. As a people, we are finished. We're not even a living people anymore. We're just a collection of dry bones. Ezekiel was to prophesy. He was to preach to the bones. And then he was to preach and prophesy to the winds. Now he is to prophesy to living human beings. Verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. There will be restoration. Now the language, because we are New Testament people, sounds very much like resurrection, doesn't it? But I don't think this is what is being said. I think what we hear is, in the Jewish mind, the mind of the Israelites, they're dead. As a people, they're dead. Might as well bury them. Go ahead and bury them because they're dead. They're just bones. And God says, no, no, no. No, no, no. I'm going to restore the people of Israel. This is not speaking, I think, to individuals, but to the nation as a whole, that they would be restored. And then there's another restoration that is to take place. It's found in verses 15 through 28. It is the oracle of the two sticks. You may remember that the children of Israel were made up originally of 12 tribes. Remember Esau and Jacob? Jacob had 12 sons. They are the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, Saul was their first king. He was followed by David, who was followed by his son Solomon. But after Solomon, the 10 tribes to the north rebelled and went their own way. They're the 10 tribes, the northern kingdom. We know them traditionally as Israel. Only two stayed together at the south. That's Benjamin. That's where Saul came from. He was a Benjamite. And Judah. David and Solomon were from the tribe of Judah. These two kingdoms were apart for centuries and at different times would fight each other. They're all Hebrews. They're all Israelites. Um, but there was this animosity between them. Well, the ten tribes to the north were conquered in 722 by the Assyrians. And they were taken into exile. And some refer to them as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Because unlike Babylon, they're not sent back. Um, they seemingly disappeared. And then Judah, now that uh, 
Ezekiel is writing this, it's 587, Judah has fallen and most of their people will be taken to exile as well. Two separate kingdoms of the people of God, which is just bizarre. They're supposed to be one. They're supposed to be the people of God. Well, look at verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it Ephraim's stick, belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Join them together in one stick so that they will become one in your hand. So I have two pins here, you can see. He's holding one that says Judah, and then the other one says Joseph or Ephraim, and he puts them together in his hand so that they look like one stick. They're actually two, but they look like one. Okay. Verse 18, when your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick, making them a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. The Valley of the Vision of Dry Bones, the Vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, that seems impossible. But the second thing is even more impossible because Israel's disappeared. The 10 tribes are gone. And yet God says, I'm going to bring them back together. They will be one people and they will have one king, not two kings as they had had ever since the split. That which no longer existed, Israel, seemingly, will be reunited with Judah, which has just now gone into its final exile. They will be one people. I think perhaps the closest analogy in our lifetime would be the reunification of Germany, East and West Germany. Um, But they actually weren't separated that long. Uh, Israel and Judah have been separated for centuries. And one of them seemingly is gone. Yeah, I think I'll just preach to dry bones. That seems more possible. But God says, in fact, that's what he will do. Because there's more to the story than simply peoples coming together. Look at verse 23. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, It will be an everlasting covenant. 
I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Beyond being brought back to life, the dry bones, beyond being reunited as one nation, the two sticks, perhaps even more amazing is that they would be restored to their relationship with God, to Jehovah, to Yahweh. His dwelling place would be with them. He would be their God and they would be his people. I think perhaps when Ezekiel first spoke these words and wrote them down, it must have seemed like a fantasy to the people listening. Edom is going to disappear. They, they sided with the winners. They sided with Nebuchadnezzar. How are they going to disappear? Israel is going to be restored in contrast to the surrounding Gentile nations. It doesn't seem possible. A nation of dry bones is going to be brought to life. The two segments of Jacob's line are going to be reunited. But more than that, they would be restored to the relationship with God. As people would say, Ezekiel, you're tripping. What have you been smoking? What have you been drinking? This is a fantasy, a complete fantasy. How can this be? Why would this be? It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. That's why God is going to do it. Restore his people and give them life. This is true of God's grace in our lives. Why has God done it? Why has God saved us? Why has he given us a new life? Why we who are the children of Adam and Eve who rebelled in Eden and have been separated from God, why are now we the children of God? Well, it's not for our sake. It's not because of us. It's because of his grace, because of his holy name. I think if we lived in a different time, salvation would not seem as amazing as it is. I think in other times, to imagine that you could become a child of God would seem like a fantasy. Really? You're going to be a child of God? Today we're like, well, yeah, of course. Uh, uh, a, A politician said recently, yeah, I think God will let me into heaven. Um, that I think is a fantasy but to imagine that we can be the children of God that we are the children of God Damon you'd be tripping I mean how is that even possible it's for his own sake the sake of his holy name It's not because of us, it's because of him. And what God does with Israel, he has done with us. We are dry bones, we are dead in trespasses and sins, and we've been brought to life. 
We've been restored to our relationship with God. When I say restored, it's not as though we had it at one time and lost it. Well, we did back with Adam and Eve in Eden. That's been a long time. But he has saved us. He has restored us for the sake of his name and nothing else. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a time in which the miraculous uh, is not really something people believe in. They, they want a rational explanation for why something happened. When we speak of the impossible, to say that it in fact could happen seems like a fantasy. To see a man in a valley of dry bones preaching to them and saying this is what the Lord says hear the word of the Lord that just seems absurd but with you all things are possible and it's not because of anything in human beings and your people in us that you do these things it is for the sake of your name because of your holiness and your grace, you have done these amazing things. And we who were dead in trespasses and sins, we who were your enemies, you have raised us to life and you have reconciled us to yourself through your son, the Lord Jesus. We take it for granted. The reality is you have done the impossible. Something that even today people say, yeah, that that just can't happen. But you, in fact, have done it and continue to do so as you call people to yourself. As we walk through the world in this coming week, may we remember that we are, in fact, living, walking miracles. You have taken us out of our sins and have adopted us as your sons and daughters. It is because of your amazing grace that this is possible. We give thanks. On this day, we give thanks for Lonnie's 75th birthday, for the years you have given her, and ask that you would give her more. We pray for Dave as he prepares to speak to us next Sunday. You would direct his thoughts, give him the words to say. For each of us in the coming days, may we have a sense of your presence. May we know that we have been reconciled, restored. The seemingly impossible has happened. We are your children. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.